0: In your own definition, how would you guys define anthropology or financial mobile technology?
1: Well, so those are two very different things. But um, I I think I always say this, that if you ask 100 anthropologists how they define anthropology, you get 100 different answers. Start at the simplest uh, definition. Anthropology literally means the study of humanity. Of course, that covers a lot of ground. Both Taylor and I are uh, trained as cultural anthropologists. So our research is on uh, what people do in their everyday lives, the meaning that they make about the practices that that make up their everyday lives, and how those practices are patterned in uh, larger groups. I guess that's kind of what my definition would be.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And as anthropologists, we're both interested in the intersections of money and technology. What's become known Mostly recently, mostly through um, the kind of hype channels of Silicon Valley as financial technology or fintech for short. In most industry circles, fintech means new digital and mobile platforms or applications for managing people's finances. They tend to be consumer facing. So the vast majority are, all about, are targeting consumers and trying to give them new options for um, how to manage their money. Our definition is a little bit broader than that. We tend to think about financial technology as anything that allows people to move, save, or keep track of value um, in a variety of different forms, denominated in however you like. Um, And so that includes a whole number of different artifacts and practices, past and present, from cuneiform tablets in ancient Mesopotamia all the way to Venmo today.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So on that line, what made you guys find your way into this area of study?
1: So Taylor's been working on money and economic anthropology much longer than I have. Uh, I guess I'll go first. My entree into this came through... Uh, working as a graduate research assistant with the Institute for Money, Technology, and Financial Inclusion at University of California, Irvine. And uh, this was a, how long was this? Six six cohorts, but Ten of almost ten years, almost ten years. years, An institute funded with a uh, grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, though working separately from the foundation, that funded research in forty-four different countries around the world, uh, mostly uh, local researchers, most of whom were in the global south, looking at everyday financial practices and monetary repertoires. That was our our phrase that came out of this. Especially the very poor, the uh, those living on uh, less than two dollars a day. And uh, so so I got involved in that as a research assistant and sort of uh, remained involved and um, uh, has taken me in a lot of interesting directions.
2: Yeah, so uh, my earliest research interests as an anthropologist grew out of time I spent in Ecuador and in Latin America, in particular with people's experiences with the official, dollarization of their economy. So in uh, late 1999, early 2000, um, the Ecuadorian government decided to officially adopt the US dollar as the national currency. When I first visited Ecuador in 2004, the memory of that monetary regime change was still very much on people's minds and, and has sort of shaped my intellectual trajectory ever since. And so I've done research on a variety of themes having to do with money and people's everyday lives in Ecuador that has been shaped by the context of dollarization. Um, like Stevie, I also worked as a graduate research assistant at the Institute for Money, Technology, and Financial Inclusion here at UC Irvine. And that uh, really sort of impacted my interests to include not just cash and coin, right, as, a, as forms of money, but but new technologies as well, in particular the mobile phone. The vast majority of research here at IMTFI has looked at the kind of ubiquitous presence of the cellular phone around the world, especially in the global south, as a tool, potential tool, and a potential platform for um, the provision of financial services, especially, as Stevie said, to to the poorest of the poor. So both of us, you know, even though we started out in very different places, our interests have really coincided around this question of what does it mean for people to have access to financial services through new technologies, especially mobile and digital technologies. Those interests, even though they've really focused on the cell phone, have come to include a range of different technologies and a range of different products and, um, and, and, and com- companies and services as well. We think of anthropology as a primarily a descriptive endeavor and an interpretive one. Mm-hmm. So we're really interested in what people actually do in their everyday lives and the actual meanings and kind of purposes that they have for doing those things. But we're also, you know, bringing an anthropological lens to questions of money and technology also means bringing with it questions about politics and power. Mm-hmm. So we're very much interested in the ways that new efforts, right, to expand Um, um, access to finance and financial services both reinforce and we hope have the potential right to uh, ameliorate some of the existing inequalities um, in the world
0: well you guys have kind of talked about it a bit but would you like to go more into your research in particular at the moment sure yeah
1: Yeah. well I guess we've got a couple of different stories we could tell there's the one about mobile money I think is would be interesting for your (laughs) listeners so the research that IMTFI funded, or many of those research projects, and, and the one that Taylor and I have just um, kind of synthesized in a, a large meta-analysis of, of that research, uh, was focused around mobile money, which are applications, infrastructures, uh, services. It, it's it's a range of things. Well, so mobile money cool. is, yeah, the financial services offered through the and cell mobile. phone. And this... Um, grew out of a very unexpected, uh, or from an unexpected place. Kind of the the origin story, at least for our purposes, comes from a research study done by Nokia Research in Uganda in 2006, led by Jan Chipchase at that time with the Nokia Research Group. They were doing fieldwork, qualitative ethnographic research in rural Uganda, uh, and observed Villagers using airtime minutes, prepaid airtime minutes, on their cell phones to remit money from from the city, from Kampala, the capital of Uganda, to villages and essentially using it as a a store of value and and to uh, transfer value in the form of airtime minutes. Because these were communities that where banking, uh, brick and mortar retail banking did not exist. Uh, There's no access to ATMs or anything. And, And this was a really safe, secure, and convenient way of transferring value from one place to another. And what grew out of that insight was this idea that, well, what if we were to think seriously about delivering quote-unquote traditional financial services purely on the mobile platform without using a a brick-and-mortar infrastructure? Could it be done... Well, clearly it was being yeah. done. And so it, it kind of uh, though it comes from this uh, industry setting. It, it really speaks to what anthropologists are always interested in, which is looking at what people are, are already doing and trying to draw insights for design, for policy, for what have you from that. I mean, anthropologists are interested in money for a whole variety
2: of reasons, right? But, but money historically yeah. and in the contemporary world has a real diversity of forms and functions. Right. So there are it comes in many, many different physical varieties and immaterial varieties as well, accounting systems, as well as cash and coin and cattle, shells and um, all sorts of things. Right. Uh, Historically and today. And people use it to do lots and lots of different kinds of things. Right. We tend to think about money as a purely as a medium of exchange Right, for buying and selling. But, you know, obviously, if you give it any thought at all, you recognize that people use money to maintain social relationships, to meet all sorts of cultural norms and expectations and obligations, everything from gifting within families to religious donations and so on and so on. To making art. To making art. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so money, it turns out, is a really interesting cultural artifact, right? And so to see people innovating and creating their own form of currency using a new technology, that's an anthropologist's dream. Right. And, and in fact, it's been a really fascinating journey since some some of those early moments. Right. So 2007 is a kind of origin point in many ways for for the new world of, of digital and mobile currencies, partly because of what happened in the global south, especially sub-Saharan Africa around the, the invention of cell phone based financial services but also in the wider world you know, and all, all around the world, I, I should say. And so, you know, if part of our research focuses on uh, mobile money in the Global South, another part of it looks at the ways that some of the lessons from the mobile money experience in the Global South have been imported back into, um, into the West, into the United States and Western Europe in particular. And so that has included an effort to kind of document the whole variety of experiments that have happened since 2007 um, in the world of money and payment. And we've already sort of mentioned a few of those already, but they include everything from, you know, peer to peer value transfer, stuff like Venmo, to new portals for e-commerce like PayPal or Amazon, to, you know, stuff that sounds like it might come right out of science fiction, right? Cryptographic currencies like Bitcoin, which has been very much in the news recently, so we've, we've written about all of these, these things um, in combination and, and individually, and we have started to think about them in a very particular way, right? So in industry and historically, people tend to think about monies as sort of moving through a kind of evolutionary progress, right? One, you know, first there's barter is typically the story, then there's coin, <laughs> then there's paper money, and then at some point in the future, right, like we won't have any of those things anymore. It'll simply be a, a, a purely cashless world, right? We tend to think of new monetary technologies, new financial technologies as additive rather than substitutive, right? So things don't disappear. We still use coins for all sorts of things, both to buy and sell, right?
1: But also, you know, to throw in the wishing well. And again, Um, that's not a new lesson at all. This this is evident historically in the way that communities have used different forms of payment and different forms of money around the world. Um, Yeah, absolutely, together, um,
2: to do different kinds of things. And so today, um, even though we're seeing a, a diverse proliferation of new experiments with money, in some ways spurred on by new digital and mobile technologies, that primary lesson, right, about the kinds of things that people do with money and the ways that they layer um, different monies on top of one another
1: um, remains true. Yeah. People have always used money socially. I mean, money is inherently social, which is, of course, what makes it interesting for anthropologists to study. Yeah, yeah. But people have also always used diverse forms of money it's not a th- this is this is not a new thing right, right. this is this is uh, if anything the most human aspect of using money absolutely it's is, is using a diverse
2: and form. that that really go, goes against one of the sort of assumptions that people make about money right which is that it should have this kind of homogenizing effect you know it should just sort of flatten the world it should erase all of our social relationships but actually we know from history right. and from today right that it actually enriches in yeah. many ways people
3: I really love this deep dive into how money is such a kind of like an old and familiar concept that just gets, you know, just gets different forms. But at the end, it's all about sociality and how we engage with each other through value. Um, and I wanted to ask you a specific question around knowledge and adoption of technology, especially of financial type of services. So we recently did, uh, both of us, a project with a peer-to-peer financial platform here in New Zealand called Harmony. And one of the challenges that they, they had and, and the perceptions that they had stood around how people use financial services. How do they know how to use it? Because a lot of these services that they were building and the products were not necessarily uh, tapping into knowledge that that people already have of how to operate money or, you know, forms of financial exchange. So uh, it relied a lot on people's ability to learn a specific algorithm and to learn it fast and to apply it in a way that it was designed by them. But this also meant that people had to learn the rules of how that thing operated quite fast. And this type of context actually puts through a lot of questions around agency, around ethics, especially in the context of New Zealand where... A value exchange is a form of moral judgment. Mm. So people place a lot of value on being able to prove that they are financially savvy, that they know how to handle their money, that they will not go into debt, which is seen as something inherently bad if it doesn't produce additional value. And just um, is just spurred by consumerism. So um, I wonder if you can speak a bit to, to this topic. Um, sorry for the long... Question. Oh no. no.
1: <laughs> yeah, actually if I could return to the the story coming out of Uganda, there's there's an interesting lesson that, that comes out of this. So this observation of people using airtime minutes as a, a form of value transfer led more or less directly into the design and, and launch of M Pesa, which is probably the most well known uh, mobile money service in the global south, maybe worldwide, yeah, uh, in fact, uh, in Kenya in um, 2007. And it was a, a smashing success, <laughs> something like is it north of 90% of Kenyans have access to or use uh, M-Pesa for peer-to-peer value transfer. And so it was a, a very successful for Safaricom, the uh, mobile network operator that designed it and runs M-Pesa. <laughs> Uh, and indications, at least early indications, are that it did help raise a significant percent of Kenyan households above the poverty line. So there were some practical effects of this as well. There was a lot of excitement, understandably, around M-Pesa and a rush by um, developers and investors and design firms and mobile network operators to, to create the new M-Pesa in, in their own local context. Yeah. But it turns out trying to replicate that experience is really difficult, right? Really, really and so difficult. I think
2: that this speaks to uh, to your project, right, with Harmony and the difficulties that you ran up against in terms of promoting consumer adoption. You know, m was a success for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is it was a success is because it built on top of what people were already doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so people were already remitting money using airtime or... More traditional methods, you know, sending them with bus drivers, et cetera, and and there were already a whole set of social relationships that had been built up that Impesa, as a company, was able to to build on top of, and those were relationships with local retailers who then became the. Cash in and cash out points for the mobile money service. I mean, the face of the service. The face of the service. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so we've been very much interested in mobile money land. This is usually referred to as the agent network, the network of of retail agents who provide customers with the the sort of physical touch point, right, for the system. And that network, right, that and it's a social network, right? It's a social infrastructure had to exist and had to be maintained and actively cared for in order for M-Pesa to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. So simply what we're seeing a lot of today in this, again, diverse proliferation of new digital and mobile forms of money and payment, we're seeing a lot of people kind of throw stuff out into the world to see what sticks. Mm -hmm. And one of the key lessons, right, is not just that there's a, a consumer demand for it, right, but that there's consumer knowledge, right, about how it works. So it has to be building on what people are already doing. Right, I mean,
1: uh, to contrast the Kenyan story, I, I think a clear contrast is uh, attempts to create an M-PESA-like service in West Africa, uh, especially in Ghana. And this is building on the
2: research of, of a fantastic researcher funded by IMTFI named Vivian Jacoto yes. um, and
1: her collaborators. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we should definitely plug Vivian's, uh, <laughs> Vivian's research. Um, so, so was fascinating. And, you know, Ghana has, from the outside, from a like kind of bird's eye perspective, Ghana and Kenya have a lot in common. They have similar GDPs. They have similar sort of uh, urban-rural divides as far as um, infrastructure and access to financial services, um, and they have similar rates of mobile phone penetration. However, when mobile network operators tried to launch a mobile money service in Ghana, uptake was slower than they had expected it to be. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that people were not using money or exchanging things the same way in Ghana as they had been in Kenya. And the trust was not there. The trust of the platform, um, is one thing and sort of knowledge of how to use a phone or how to, uh, use a, a, an application is one thing, but trust in the, the actual human actors who are part of the social infrastructure that makes up mobile money, yeah. um, is quite another. And where Kenya had these super diverse, I don't know, uh, uh retailer customer relationships, kinship relationships that mobile money tapped into in Ghana, Those relationships were quite different. There there is sort of a... a They're more hierarchical, right?
2: right? And this has to do with longstanding cultural differences, right, between East and and West Africa.
1: And West Africa. Also, on top of that, there's... Not that this doesn't exist in Kenya, but uh, what Vivian and um, other researchers in Ghana have have observed is that... (laughs) Cash has a really, really important symbolic value in the marketplace in Ghana, where at the end of the day, market vendors will count their cash very publicly. There's this public performance of counting cash that has this um, social capital. Which
2: you can't do when it's all on the phone. Yeah. (laughs) You (laughs) can't hold up your phone for how much people
1: have sent you. Or at least you can't do it now. Yeah, yeah. you could imagine designing a service that does that somehow, but no one has done it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, exactly. So, uh, you know, let me let me offer a very different contrast. Right. Mm-hmm. So if one interesting contrast is between the success of M-Pesa in Kenya and the lack of success of other mobile money services um, in other parts of the world, we might also say that the success or non-success of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin provides another really um, important axis of, of, of contrast. So. Um, when it was designed, Bitcoin was imagined to be a medium of exchange and mode of payment, right? That people would use it to send money to one another and to buy things. And as it turns out, as we know from dollar price of Bitcoin, that's not really what people are using it for. And in fact, the the community of people who own Bitcoin, that's not really what, what they've invested um their knowledge and expertise into building, right? Not a platform for commercial or interpersonal exchange, but a platform for, for storing value, for saving, mm-hmm. and therefore for speculating. Yeah. And so what we see with Bitcoin, right, is the, the invention of a new technology, That enters into a set, an existing set of social relationships and set of cultural expectations and norms and values that shape its trajectory. So um, as people have taken it up, they fit it into their existing sets of financial practices, which for them oriented primarily around. Hoarding, <laughs> to, to, but not to find a point on it. Right. And, you know, so Bitcoin now for many people is one piece of a larger investment portfolio. Yeah, right? right. So even though Bitcoin has, from my perspective, failed as a as a medium of exchange. Right. Um, it's succeeded as a store of value or at least as a as a speculative asset.
0: So you've talked a lot about these relationships and that with the companies, all these cases and that. So I was just wondering if you could talk to these sort of companies, what advice would you give them?
1: I mean, the most obvious warning, I think, or the, the, the primary one is one size does not fit all. I mean, that, that's, that's a, a mantra that really we came out of our IMDb researchers research. Uh, you cannot simply copy and paste a success story from one place to another. And you do have to pay attention to local context and to contingencies that are unexpected. And in order to understand local context, you need to do research. Yeah. You know, and that's so, where carefully trained qualitative researchers like anthropologists, yeah. really important role to play. Um, Absolutely. If one size
2: doesn't fit all and if you need to really understand, you know, to put it in business terms, the market right, that you're operating in then there's no substitute for good, you know, mixed methods research, including qualitative research, including ethnographic research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we do think that anthropologists have an absolutely crucial role to play in in helping companies design uh, services that make sense for their users. But I will also say, and this this echoes a point I I mentioned earlier, you know, anthropologists and ethnographers also bring an attention to inequality, right, Mm -hmm. that otherwise go unnoticed. So, you know, if one of the things that we think interferes with adoption of new financial technologies, especially in the in the global south, but but increasingly in the post global financial crisis, United States and Western Europe in a context of increasing austerity, increasing inequality stagnating wages, uh, rising precarity, work conditions. All of those trends will throw a wrench into efforts to to introduce new financial services. And so we need to pay attention to inequality rather than try to, to ignore it or, or wave it away.
3: One of the challenges that we as anthropologists that work with companies is that inherently the company itself is just another cultural universe, you know, with different identities, different definitions. And The way they look at consumers and the way they see the power and the agency of these groups together with them is very different if you look at it from the inside, you know. So most of the times they definitely operate from a perspective that innovation, it taps into something that it doesn't exist today. You know, it's about creating the new rather than understanding the practices and fitting into them uh, into this kind of organic way through which you've spoken to um, until now. So uh, there's a very strong paradigm shift, somehow, that kind of Needs to happen, and and I think it also comes from the fact that they do operate in kind of a vacuum, you know. So of course, the way they look at you know how innovation is constructing and what's the agency of the people that they are building things for in that relationship needs to kind of maybe shift, um, in in order for them to clearly see and do, and do that research. So. I was wondering if you would have um, any advice, you know, because we are trained anthropologists and, of course, the way we look at at cultures, it's maybe easier (laughs) from their perspective. You know, like I've I've had a few um, businesses come to me and said, oh, it it looks so easy, you know, just going out there and, and just looking at people and assuming that what they do holds precedent over what I think they do. But it but it's actually not that easy. Um, and especially when, <laughs> when you've been working inside a company and you don't really have that practice. So you still even if they go out there doing interviews, they still operate from their own narratives. So I was wondering if you have any advice, you know, for um, for people working inside companies that want to understand the other on how, how they can, you know, silence that inner voice. Sure.
1: I, I think One lesson that I have taken away from a mentor here at at UC Irvine is that when it comes to doing ethnography, uh, obviously we use a lot of different methods. But at the end of the day, if you're not doing participant observation in one form or another, you're not really doing ethnography. And that's something I agree with. Not all anthropologists would agree with that, but... You can do a lot of user interviews. You can do a lot of kind of structured observations, but you're not gonna get the, the complete picture of people's practices from doing that. There's a, lot, there is a gap between what people tell you they do and what they are actually doing. And it takes practice to be able to identify that gap and understand uh, the, the difference in meaning between yeah, what, what people are saying about what they're doing and what you're seeing them doing.
2: But so, yeah, just to build on that, I would I would say that bringing ethnography into in a real way into um, business practice offers two things. One is something that Stevie just said, which is that it, it gives you a much broader methodological toolkit. So the core of that methodological toolkit is participant observation long-term, in-depth experience in a particular context and using that experience to draw conclusions. But around it are a whole universe of other methods, creative methods, mm-hmm. as well as more traditional ones. And user interviews certainly are a part of that, but so are mapping exercises, mm-hmm. financial diaries, uh, object-oriented interviews. There's a whole range of things that people could be doing to really augment right that core ethnographic method. Right, right. The second thing I think that ethnography brings to business practice has to do with this mindset, right, that I think that you were you were trying to sort of that, that we're all kind of trying to understand and maybe and shift a little bit. Right. And I think that one of the things that ethnography provides is is a certain level of. Uh, self-reflection or capacity for for kind of meta-reflection, right? So that you can start to recognize not just that what people are doing is shaped by their own historical experiences and set of cultural um, values, etc., but that 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 also applies to you, right? Like that—that yeah. that is the core insight of of anthropology from the 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 inception of the discipline, right? Academic discipline as well as um, its wider practice, you know, its practice in the wider world. So. One bit of advice would be, you know, hire trained ethnographers. <laughs> and maybe that's a little glib. So I was just reading uh, Mohamed el Arian's new book. So Mohammed mm-hmm. el Arian is a founder of PIMCO, a millionaire a business person here in the United States. And one of the things that he really drives home, right, is um, diversity in your, in your working team. And that diversity, he says, should fall along um, more traditional kinds of lines, right? You know, gender, race, ethnicity and so on, but it can, it should, and also follow along, um, occupational and training lines, right? Mm -hmm. Like you need to bring people with a different set of, um, life experiences and training experiences, um, into your, um, into your team, right? And so, you know, hiring ethnographers, hiring people from the global South, hiring women, hiring women of color, like those things are not, that's not lip service, right? Mm -hmm. That provides an absolutely crucial way to be able to, to better understand what's going on in the world, right? So that you're not um, relying on your own blinkered uh, um,
1: perspective. I, mean, I think what another way of, of putting that is that, and, and this is what I always tell my students, you yourself as an ethnographer are a data collection instrument yeah. with all of the advantages and disadvantages that that uh, entails. But drawing upon your own Social, cultural, political, whatever background um, uh, that can't help but influence the research that you do. Um, and even as your experiences
2: change right, through the instrument research. itself, right? Like, there's no way for you to do research, good ethnographic research, and not come away from that experience it's changed and transformed yourself, right? But you have to you have to be open to it as an ethnographer, right? right. So you know, having trained ethnographers on your team, right, necessarily will change the approach that you take to innovation, to, you know, technology adoption and so on. Yeah.
1: And, and as I said, it, 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 does take practice. I mean, there is a reason why we spend the better part of a decade learning how to do this as students. Um, I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, frittering away our time. No, absolutely not. It, it really is a, a professionalization that I think is, um, it's maybe becoming better understood outside of the academy, but still probably has
0: a way to go. <laughs> yeah, With our case when we worked with Harmony, there was also another issue that came up, which I think you guys have already mentioned about trust and technology, but there was mm-hmm. kind of this idea around people having this negative view of technologies, especially financial technologies, because it's, it involves money, and they just found that people had a lot of trust issues around it. So we're just wondering, what more would you have to say to that?
1: So this is actually kind of fascinating. I was just reading about this yesterday, that at least bankers in the United States have, have seen a shift in their customers. And of course, this is really only, only one small segment of the global segment of, of people using money. And is that in the past 10 to 15 years, people have become much more comfortable with the idea of financial institutions collecting and using their data. And that theoretically, I mean, that's a good thing, right? Uh, If there is a partnership between uh, a financial service institution and a end user, you know, a a trusting relationship between the two, then yes, theoretically, you're going to have better services, better products, uh, better experiences all around. But establishing that trust takes time and, and can be easily broken. I mean, just look at the fallout that we're continuing to see from the, the global financial crisis in 2008. Absolutely. Um, I mean, trust is yeah. not
2: a given. Trust right. takes work and time that is irreplaceable and it is very, very fragile. And trust is fundamentally about relationships. So um, when you're talking about the trust between, I mean, trust is also different when you're talking interpersonally versus between people and institutions. But if you're talking about the trust that inheres between a person and a financial institution, if trust is a matter of, of the relationship between those between those entities between those actors, then there are certain things that institutions can do to to help foment that trust over time. And it's not going to happen overnight. And it does take work. But participation and transparency are, are really crucial ways, right, that new financial services and new financial institutions can increase the trust of potential users. So one of the new projects that we're just now embarking on, Stevie and I, has to do with the potential for credit unions here in the United States to use new financial technologies, and we think that credit unions are especially well positioned mm-hmm. to um, to be the providers of new financial services, digital and mobile technologies, and that's because they are a cooperative institutions mm-hmm. at their foundation. Right? They don't have customers; they have members. Right? They are nonprofit; they exist for the benefit of their members. Right? And so we think that you know if new financial technologies you know companies providing new financial technologies might take a page out of the playbook of credit unions mm-hmm. and be able to understand that people are not going to simply take to adopt a technology simply because right there are social incentives right, involved in that relationship, and those incentives have to do with trust in a cooperative relationship, uh, in a responsive relationship. So credit unions and other cooperative financial institutions may be very well positioned to be the curators of people's financial tools and data. And so one of the yeah. one of the things that we've seen in particular, as money has shifted into this new mobile and digital world, are worries around personal data. And I think that those are legitimate worries. So institutions need to take those seriously. But of course, this also feeds into a much longer history of money mm-hmm. as a kind of vulgar, evil mm-hmm. phenomenon. Now, around the world, right, there are cultural complexes around money as a kind of vulgar institution. At the root of all Money evil is, is the root of, the of all evil, evil right? right? That, that's a Judeo-Christian thing, yeah, but it's right. not only um, right. a Judeo-Christian thing. So, yeah, p- part of what um, you saw in New Zealand may be that as well, that kind of historically rooted mm-hmm. aversion to all things financial, as well as a new set of anxieties, right, around the shifting of finance into mobile and digital world.
3: What we've also seen, especially here, is that new financial technologies, they actually come with a deficit of trust on the market. Because you have a market that is that is really a concentrated in traditional banking that controls the narratives around who holds the expertise to care for you and uh, invest your money for you or manage your money for you. All these new guys are seen as, you know, you have to prove that you are valuable to us of trust. So they, they don't come mm-hmm. from a neutral position. They they come from a deficit, which is quite interesting. And on the other hand, it's interesting to observe. What, I mean, what is the narratives around financial institutions, new or old? Like, how much do they really hold the interest of the community? right? There's so much cultural narratives around, you know, bankers being rich and not helping you with your money. And and there's a disbalance of power between the institution and the person that that puts the money there. Whereas when you look at cooperative banking, it it kind of tries to shift that balance of power as a way to enable that trust building.
2: Yeah. I'll also say that one of the interesting things that we've learned in our research is the degree to which trust also inheres in what are often called fringe financial services here in the United States. So, There's a tendency to dismiss fringe financial service providers like check cashers Hmm. or payday lenders, lenders, right? Because the rates are very predatory. And indeed, people are disadvantaged by some of those services. On the other hand, people go back again and again. And the reason is not just a lack right, that they don't have other options. It's because those fringe financial services, and this is a lesson that's come out of some of the research by Lisa Servone, offer something that traditional financial institutions don't, right? And that's FaceTime, it's clarity of cost and, and
1: purpose. It's it's being a part of the local community. It's, yep. it's identifying like, oh, you are one of us, <laughs> even if charging me 30% interest on a loan. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something
2: that even credit unions in the United States could could learn about. they you know, Again, like this is about approaching finance not as just simply you know customer service or, or service delivery, but as a social
1: relationship. Mm-hmm fundamentally a social relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I would add to that, that it, it's not just a question of, is there trust in an institution? It's not just a question of, is there trust in a service or a product? It's also, is there a trust in the the platform, in the delivery channel? I yeah. mean, that that's another part of the equation that often gets forgotten, you know, but it, it's clearer in a lot of the research that say IMTFI researchers did in the global South, where Well, if you're if you're trying to launch a mobile money service in a place where the mobile network is intermittent, um, you're probably not going to have a lot of luck with that because (laughs) you could build a really secure, great, easy to use, fantastic service with great agents, but if you can't trust the delivery channel, yeah, then what are we working with here? Exactly. Right? So, you know, there, there are layers of
2: trust, right? Like, it's not always about your particular product. It's about the whole range of political and economic contexts that your product is entering into.
3: One question that we kind of ask all of our speakers together, we have actually two questions that we ask everybody. One is we have dubbed it technology is evil. (laughs) And the second one has to do with ethics and ethics and power, Um, especially when it comes to developing new technologies and, you know, especially new unregulated field where you have a, a company that wants to build up a service of technology, whatever that service would be, be it a media platform, a financial platform, a medical device, and dealing with the ethics of building building that and the potential impact that it might have on the people and the balance of power between, you know, what rights do you have to influence certain patterns of social life that, that you could influence with a particular piece of technology? So um, I, we were wondering if you could speak a bit to, to the ethics of, of building new technology, uh, particularly in the financial sector. I think this is very relevant. I, and I'm also aware that this assumes, you know, the question of ethics also assumes that disbalance of power, that you actually can influence a, the social environment of a community uh, to a large extent. Uh, but I think with some services actually does happen. This happens.
1: <laughs> just, that's and, uh, 30 seconds. <laughs>
2: That's the million dollar question, you know, the the ethics and technology question. And it's one that's being debated increasingly by social scientists as well as technologists.
1: I mean, you look at the fallout around, say, the fake news and Facebook. I mean, this this has brought to light a real ethical challenge for social media provide, you know, social network services. But in terms of uh, fintech itself, I mean, perhaps there should be a Hippocratic oath for <laughs> fintech developers, right? That like the do no harm should be the first thing. I mean, it just makes good business sense. You don't <laughs> you don't want to, you know if you want to maintain and build a customer base, you want to have a product that is. Uh, safe to use and then provide some sort of benefit for the user.
2: I'll say this. For Stevie and I, as we've been doing research in this space since 2008, 2009, early on um, in the kind of explosion of fintech experiments, right? We've seen the conversation shift from one around development and poverty alleviation to one around what's often termed financial inclusion, mm-hmm. which is the simple provision of financial services to the un and under mm-hmm. And from financial inclusion to financial literacy, financial education, financial, financial health, financial health, now financial well-being. And we think that that shift is a healthy one, right, because it foregrounds a much wider variety of experiences and the kind of work, right, that good financial services can do for people. We would like to see one further step taken. Yes. And that's from financial well-being to financial justice. Mm. And that's because we think that finance exists in in historical context, and there are ways that new financial technologies can and should take into account the kinds of historical harms that have been visited upon communities around the world by finance and through finance. Mm -hmm. And so we think that there's a role to play for anthropologists and other social scientists in foregrounding those questions of politics and ethics and not, you know, and in doing work with industry as we do, not letting those questions slip away, but continually coming back to them as you've done at the end of this Mm -hmm. (laughs) this conversation, which is good, right? Like if we can always end our conversations with the question about ethics and technology or ethics and finance, I think that you know, that is at least the, the first step that is the first step. And so you know, one of the things that we continually do, and that we've done, for example, in our um, in our new credit union research is to really foreground the question of financial justice and financial injustice.
1: I mean, it, it can be very frustrating at times because it's not the most comfortable question to deal with. Yeah. People people often don't want to talk about it, but I, I can draw some optimism in the fact that we're even having the conversation. Mm-hmm. Taylor said, I mean, that is progress. Yes, yeah. you
2: know. I mean, Stevie, you know, in our partnership, Stevie is the optimist and I am the <laughs> pessimist.
3: Yeah. And I think yeah. it's, it's also important our position within the, those teams, you know, and not taking on the position of a, of a warrior for social justice, um, and putting the other one in the opposite corner. You know, uh, one of the challenges that I had st- coming into anthropology from a business field was until I, you know, got my first cum laude inside the university, I was seen as this person coming from business. What are you doing here? Like, what is your yeah. motivation? Are you Enemy. really, you know? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there's, there's something to be said also on how academia, especially in anthropology, portrays capitalism and business. Mm. And um, and what what does does to those anthropologists that choose to go out there working with businesses and 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 have a self-reflection around that, because uh, I think for me, particularly working with businesses, um, this has been uh, a bit of a challenge in some fields where I have a very strong, social position um and where i I kind of tend to make the conversation very binary so uh, and that doesn't help them to make that self-reflection around ethics right when when you already put them in that evil box
1: (laughs) i mean if 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 we can kind of flip our insights about um uh, on the ground, financial practices, everyday financial practices, and say that you know they they exist in local context. There is no, you you can't paint everything with a broad brush. One size doesn't fit all. The same is true of business, right? Yeah. Capitalism is not monolithic. There is not one thing called capitalism. There are capitalisms. So absolutely, um, kind of taking the lessons that we. As anthropologists get from dealing with with our interlocutors and and what is it studying up
2: (laughs) or just or just bringing those lessons back home and and learning to see our own lives through the same kind of um, self-reflective lens. Right. So it's about, you know, recognizing that there's diversity in the business world. And it's also recognizing that this is the pessimist in me. We are all compromised. Right. Yeah. There's no position of purity from which one can pronounce, mm-hmm. from you know, on high the evils of the world. Right. Simply being in higher education compromises in other ways, too. Right. So it's not like. Right. But we're impure beings. As we're, well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, my point is that that doesn't just because I think this is actually a, a Clifford Geert's line. But just mm-hmm. because you can't get a What does he say? You can't get a surgery room perfectly mm-hmm. sterile doesn't mean that you should be doing surgery in the sewer. Right. Right. Like there are ways that you can make the world better without necessarily committing only to the best of all possible worlds. I think that there's a certain kind of epistemological and political humility that needs to come along with our efforts to improve the world. Pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah. Pragmatism.
0: So I would like to say thank you to the both of you for speaking to us. Um, For all our listeners listening to this, we will um, put a link of their works and how you can look at all their research up on our um, podcast page. And thank you again for um, coming to speak to us. And um, yeah, have a good day.